Wednesdays, self-assessment. The action is rest. The outcome, clarity. The attitude is peace. Okay, so I fibbed in the last chapter. Well, to put it more accurately, I omitted the truth. The story of Tap the Rock was based on the Stonecutter, but it was really just a spinoff from the original story. The original Stonecutter story is an old Japanese folktale, and the story focuses on the concept of desire and greed. The story was summed up on westbornwoods.scholastic.com in the following passage. The Stonecutter is a story of a man who works diligently each day, cutting stone from a mountain. The stone is used to build the great temples and palaces of Japan. One day, the stonecutter witnesses a prince passing by, preceded by a soldier and followed by musicians and dancers. The stonecutter stops working and wishes to be a prince, so that he too might enjoy his wealth and power. The spirit hears the stonecutter's wish and obliges him. Soon, the stonecutter wishes to be the son, which he decides is more powerful than a prince. The stonecutter shows his power as the sun in ways harmful to the people of the land. He then wishes to be the clouds and then a mountain. Each time the stonecutter wishes for more power. The end of the story finds the stonecutter as a mountain with the sound of a lowly stonecutter chipping away at the foot of that mountain. Now like most stories, there's a singular moral yet a plethora of ways it can be interpreted. When I read it, I thought about the idea of desire as a whole. Why do we want? Why does it seem like what we want seems to not want us? How many things which have I wanted have ever been delivered? How many times has not getting what I wanted altered my life for the better? The biggest question of them all is, why? Why do I want what I want? One of the beauties of being human is realizing that everything we have started off as a thought or in this case, a desire. As cavemen, we wanted warmth and light, so we figured out how to harness fire. Centuries later, we wanted to power machines and find a more efficient way to light up our world, so we harnessed electricity. We wanted to mimic the way electricity connects things and powers our world, so we created the internet. Every step of our evolution has been based on the lack of something and the desire to implement it into everyday lives. So, what do we as a species really want above all? If you boil it down, the thing we truly desire is to not desire at all. If you look outside, you'll see this answer within the question keeps getting overlooked. We've sunk into a place as a species where when faced with the question, what do you want? Our knee jerk response is more. I take this time out to say outright, I understand minimalism is not for everyone. I'm in no way trying to force that way of life onto anyone who desires more than what they have because it's natural. The only thing I want you to think about is, why do we want what we want? What problem will it solve? How long will it be satisfying? Can I live without it? We often question everything around us but overlook the most important person to pose the question to, ourselves. On the Joe Rogan Experience, the most listened to podcast in the world, philosopher and guru Naval Ravikant dropped an amazing gem on the concept of desire. He said, a happy person wants 10,000 things. A sick person just wants one thing. So it's your unlimited desires that are clouding your peace, your happiness. Have desires. You're a biological creature that stands up and says, I can do something. 
I can move. I resist. I live. But just be very careful of your desires. This is the oldest, most trite wisdom. Desire is suffering. The ability to narrow down what you truly want is becoming more and more important because of the ever-increasing scope of our desires. As humans, we generally want what we see. A nice car drives by and suddenly our minds imagine the feeling we would have if we were behind the wheel. You're on a walk and a happy couple passes by, smiling and kissing. Miraculously, your mind becomes enamored with finding a partner that could bring you happiness. In both examples, it's what people physically saw that made them desire more. So imagine what our minds began to do once social media was introduced. So how do you get to the root of what you truly want? You do one of the most unthinkable things in today's society, nothing. We live in a time where stopping feels like giving up altogether. The technology around us has tricked our minds into thinking that we operate like it. There's always breaking news on our feed, so we feel the need to constantly consume, or even worse, constantly produce. This is not how we function, or at least not how we function efficiently. We don't truly figure out what we want until we stop letting the world show us what everyone else has, or at least what everyone else pretends to have. In short, the answer is inward. Everything starts in the mind. So if you want to change something in your life, you have to change the way you think first. The outside world is what it is and will be that way until the end of time. The only thing that truly changes is us. J. Cole once said, I know you're desperate for the change. Let the pen glide. But the only real change comes from inside. Environments play a huge part in success. But the only one we have complete control over is the one inside our heads. Think of desire as a seed, your inner environment as the soil. If the environment is cluttered with false information, images of end results, and uncorrelated destinations, how well do you think that seed will do? But if the environment is clear, nourishing, and well adapted to its surroundings, the seed will more than likely prevail. Self-sufficiency stems from self-mastery, but how can we master the unknown? Self-reflection is as necessary to a process as sleep is to our minds and bodies. Once that's mastered, the next step is to align yourself with the outer environment that cultivates your needs. My favorite embodiment of this is Rec Philly, a place for creators. It's exactly what it sounds like. A space that combines several mediums for different kinds of artists. There are music recording studios, a podcast room, a painting studio, a photography set, and more. If you consider yourself a creator, Rec has the resources to help turn your hobby into a living. But this place didn't just appear out of thin air and magically grow to be as glamorous as it is today. As most great spaces, it started off as a desire. Co-creators Dave Silver and Will Tom's top desire was to create a space that could house all of the city's creative talent. In North Philly, in the early 2010s, a stone's throw away from Temple's campus, the two found a space that they converted into a studio for recording artists. Before long, they understood the space could be used for several creative mediums and went to work on getting the word out about the multifaceted space. In a little less than a decade, they built a loyal following of musical artists, photographers, videographers, and creative entrepreneurs. In the winter of 2019, they opened their doors to a state-of-the-art facility in Philadelphia's prominent fashion district. 
My favorite part of their story is that a lot of this was planned from the jump. What they've built today and will build in the future is the result of a team moving with passion and purpose. Like a muscle, they constantly built the brand's name by over-delivering on events, expressing gratitude towards their members, and handling business with integrity. When I spoke to Will Toms about the process of building a facility like REC, he stressed the importance of two things, following your vision and appreciating the moments where nothing's happening. Back in 2015, when we were in the space in North Philly, we remember turning on the lights and seeing roaches and rats. Will said with a gracious smile towards the past. But like, that was okay, because we knew this is going to be a state-of-the-art facility one day. Obviously, it was hard to explain to some people back then, but that's the thing about the vision. It's yours. Everyone's not supposed to see it. It's just on you to bring it to life. So that's what we held on to in those times. Hearing it like that made me feel a little less crazy. And then you have those moments where it seems like everything's gonna fall apart, he continued. But those are the moments where you gain clarity on how to take your next step. He told me about the fear and anxiety around the pandemic because it forced them to close their doors after being open for not even one year. A few months later, under mass mandate, they reopened to welcome an influx of creators eager to get back to work. This re-grand opening solidified the team's confidence and actually put them in a position to expand the brand. Hearing Will's story, all I could focus on was the fact that they didn't panic and did stick to their vision. A few months before the original open, Dave, my former agent Josh, and I stepped into the hollow space that would soon become Rec Philly. Being our mutual friend, Josh had set up the meeting. He understood the potential of our relationship and knew exactly what Rec was becoming. Because I work in the media, I naturally turn conversations into interviews, asking question after question. I immediately noticed Dave's excitement when we talked about people enjoying and utilizing the space. What excited him most was not the state-of-the-art equipment or the prime location, but rather the people having access to what they needed. As I write this, sitting at wreck about 30 feet from both Dave and Will, I realized how simple the nature of their plan was. Creatives needed an ecosystem made especially for them, and Rec over-delivered on this space. In other words, there was a problem presented, and they solved it. Think about how many successful ventures bring these two together. Computers were once scary and cryptic. Insert Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak, and boom, happened. Our planet shows signs of accelerated decay due to gas emissions, and now we're racing to find sustainable energy. The basic, most overlooked key to success is figuring out which key opens a door that's yet to be opened. In terms of environment, it's about figuring out which seed grows the best in the soil provided. But how do we know which seed is the best before we plant it? How do we do this for our inner environment before we even face the pressure of the outside world? We look at the gray area between instinct and knowledge. When I showed up to my first practice, I was nervous and excited. I was ready to compete. I was ready to learn about my new teammates. And most of all, I was ready to play a different role than I did in college. The taboo subject in team sports is that sacrifice comes in waves and hits every member of the team in a different way. Although Villanova is one of the best and most materialistic successful times of my life, 
I always wanted more success as an individual. I walked in, saw a practice already started, and judging by the amount of sweat that was flying around, they had been there for a while. I greeted the head coach and watched my teammates scrimmaging, measuring up my skills against theirs. The coach was tough, but fair, and let me know from the jump what my role was gonna be. He held up a ball and pointed to the words on top of it and asked me, what does it say? Confused, I looked at him and said, Spalding? Do y'all say something different over here? He shook his head and replied, no, it says dunk this shit. You do that, the fans will love you, the team will love you, and we'll pay you. And then he told me how many minutes I would play, what he expected from me, and the areas he wanted me to improve in. My heart sank lower and lower as we spoke because I realized that I've pretty much been playing the same position I did in college. Same amount of minutes, same position on offensive defense, same expectations. When I got back to my apartment, I almost lost it. Did I really just fly halfway across the world to do exactly what I was trying to escape back home? Then, like those brick hit Harry and Marv in Home Alone 2, the answer came crashing down on me. My circumstances weren't gonna change until I did. I realized that my role was indifferent towards me and was only seen as a blessing or a curse through my eyes. It was a curse in the past because I didn't embrace it and viewed it as a burden no one else was willing to take on. I changed my mind to view it as a blessing because no one on the team could do my job as efficiently as I could. My instincts told me to use my endurance and athleticism to wear out my opponents because that's what came to me naturally. My newfound knowledge of our team's personnel let me know that this skill set was exactly what our team was missing. We had guys who could facilitate, guys who could shoot, and guys who could handle better than me. What we lacked was someone who could set solid screens, play above the rim, and defend several positions. In looking at the gray area between instinct and knowledge, I found a place where I not only excelled, but also completely set myself apart from most players. Imagine if instead, I spent that season being frustrated about the role I couldn't accept, the very role that was best fit for me. Imagine if I returned home, got hurt all the same, and spent the rest of my life with the regret of sulking through my last season. We can't control the world and we can't stop time. What we can do is control our effort and attitude and give ourselves a second to reflect when we feel burned out or lost. Self-sufficiency stems from self-mastery, but you can only master what you know. So take the time to get to know you. Then, instead of searching for where you fit in, find a place where you stand out and grow. There's nothing wrong with wanting more, but before you pursue any desire, ask yourself, but why?